Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of change makers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. Not many people serve in an administration for all eight years at a senior level. It's exhausting, often daunting work. But my New America colleague, Cecilia Munoz, our Vice President for Public Interest Technology and Local Initiatives, did just that. First as Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, then followed by five years as Director of the Domestic Policy Council. Before working in government, Cecilia was Senior Vice President at the National Council of La Raza, now Unidos U.S., the nation's largest Hispanic policy and advocacy organization where she served for 20 years. She is soon to release a fascinating and timely new book called More Than Ready, Be Strong and Be You, and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. As the daughter of immigrants from Bolivia and one of the most successful women in Washington that I know, I wanted to find out from Cecilia what resilience has meant to her own life both personally and professionally. Let's get to my conversation with Cecilia Munoz. Cecilia Munoz, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to talk about resilience, this sort of big word that means different things, I've discovered, to different people. Uh, And I've always thought about it, for instance, as kind of hunkering down like a rock, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yet others think of it as adaptability or flexibility. So I just want to start by saying when I say resilience, what does that mean to you? What do you think about? Well, I learned the term in the in the policy context because I'm a policy nerd. So the first thing that comes to mind is climate resilience because just that's a thing that we worked on as a policy matter. Uh, But if as I dig into the idea, I also think I think of it as people's ability to withstand what's coming. And you Mm -hmm. do that as a community, you do that as an individual, you maybe do that as a family. But being here is fraught with challenges always, no matter where you are. And so I think of resilience as kind of the capacity to adjust, adapt, and and ultimately the sources of strength, which then make it possible to thrive. Oh, no, I love that. The sources of strength that make it possible to thrive. Anybody who knows Cecilia Munoz knows she has a wonderful ability to capture uh, particular phrases or, or feelings. So I love that. So then if you think about resilience in your own life, what are those sources of strength that allow you to thrive? How do you think about that? You know, the time when I really thought about it as a specific thing that I found myself being aware of thinking about it was right after 9-11. Oh. Because it was such a shock to the system, something like this hadn't happened, at least in our memory in the yeah. U.S. Yeah. And I'd lost a friend, as you know, so I was, you know, shaken to to my core. And my mother-in-law, who's from India, happened to be staying with us. In fact, she was supposed to be flying that day. Oh. And my parents are, of course, immigrants from Bolivia. And I thought that my mother-in-law and my parents would be completely freaked out about 
us living in D.C. potentially facing these threats? Because you'll remember there was also an anthrax right. threat oh, and there absolutely. was a lot going on. And they were so much less freaked out than I was, and I was surprised. Hmm. And then I realized, oh, <laughs> to me it was new right. that we've – that these kinds of things could happen. But to my parents in Bolivia, it was not new. And to my mother-in-law, who's from India, but who also spent a lot of her adult life in, in Kenya, it was also not new. Like in the places they lived and in the lives they led, terrible things happened that you adjusted to. And the difference between them and me is that I had happened to be born in a place and at a time where it mostly didn't happen. So I was kind of joining the rest of the world. Right. And we were kind of joining the rest of the world in the United States, right? There are all kinds of parts of the world which, un where unfortunately, unthinkable things happen. We just didn't know we were part of that world. I think that's very well put. And I remember also feeling this sort of loss of innocence, yes. although you're right, it's for our generation, because my father can tell you where he was at Pearl Harbor, of course, Pearl Harbor's Hawaii, but that same sense suddenly that Fortress America had been breached right. uh, was, was new for that generation. But no question, you know, there, New York, Washington, Pennsylvania, you know, I, I actually saw a sort of flip of that because I was teaching at Harvard Law School, and I was teaching 100 150 foreign law students, mm -hmm. some of them were deeply traumatized, but because they had come to a country where they thought it couldn't happen. Right. They had come from countries where, yeah, absolutely, they knew it could, but they thought they'd feel safe here, and then suddenly we were going through this trauma, right. so that, that was a kind of double trauma. Right, and we went through it as parents, too. My kids were little at the time, and I remember saying to my husband, how do we prepare them to live in, in in a world where these things happen. And, you know, my husband's a very wise man. He said, you know, to, to a degree, you can't protect them. Right. You do your best, but you there's you can't. But he said you can you can try to provide them what he calls the spiritual resources hmm. to live in a world where these kinds of things happen. And to, that's another way of thinking about resilience, right, is the, the inner strength that helps you recognize nothing is permanent. Safety is kind of an illusion and helps you figure out how to live with that knowledge. Yes. Then that is, again, you said the resources that help you – thrive, so spiritual as well, and the capacity to accept, um, you know, life is finite to begin yeah. with, all of ours, uh, and and so much of what we love passes. So I like that idea. I, we, we also had young children and drove down the New Jersey Turnpike three days after it happened, you could still see the smoke rising from where the towers had been. Uh, and I often wonder whether that marks that generation differently. Certainly my parents, my mother was a child of war in, in Brussels, and that it does change your perception from an early age of, of what can what can happen. Um, you mentioned that your parents are uh, immigrants from Bolivia. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in Michigan yep. with a strong family. Oh, yes. <laughs> so talk a little bit about uh, resilience in families and maybe particularly in immigrant families. So I grew up in one of those big, messy, wonderful immigrant families. It was not just my parents who came in 1950 as newlyweds to Detroit, but uh, my aunt and uncle who came with five kids and an aunt of my dad's who was raising her grandchildren. So we, there were a lot of us, a lot of Bolivianos <laughs> in the in the Detroit suburbs. And I was related to all of them. And I, uh, my, as you know, my, my dad recently passed away and I have in my kitchen a frame, a picture frame that we gave him for his last Christmas, mm. which it's one of those digital frames. Yes. And we loaded, because he had dementia, we loaded 
literally hundreds of photos from throughout his life. And and they're, they sort of, there they, they are in my through. kitchen. Yeah. yeah. And there are all these pictures of my parents and my aunt and uncle and all of the kids in the, in the 50s, which is before I was born. I was right. born in 1962, as new immigrants to this, you know, to this new place. And what shines out at me is their optimism. Huh. Right? My parents came, my, my parents had nothing when they came except my dad's education, which is not nothing at that. That's how they, how they, Succeeded. The University of Michigan, exactly. But they, you know, they had to figure it out. And my mom didn't have a college education, and she figured out uh, ultimately a career for herself. But the this sense of here we are, and everything is possible. And of course, in Detroit in the 1950s, that was, was true. Yeah. <laughs> that was true. And even for Latin American immigrants, my mother was learning English. She learned from ask. listening to the radio. Even though, you know, they almost got kicked out of their first apartment for the landlady accused them of speaking Mexican, as she put it. And they told that story after I joined the civil rights movement because they thought it was kind of funny. Like they didn't, they, you know, I saw a terrible civil rights violation right. and they saw a landlady who was so ignorant that they didn't know that, you know, the language of Cervantes is called Spanish. It's not called Mexican. And, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, so they faced the stuff that you, you faced in the fifties, but they, my aunt and uncle and, uh, you know, all of us who came up just came up with a sense of optimism. And that is the thing that immigrants bring throughout time. You, you know, if you come, on purpose, that's, an, first of all, an amazing thing to leave everything you know and right. come to a new place where you don't speak the language. And, you know, you think about immigrants today who are going through so much. Uh, talk about resilient people, people who are working two and three jobs, yeah. who um, are, are doing that and raising kids. I was talking to a friend just last night who teaches limited English proficient little kids. And she said, anybody who is struggling with the presence of immigrants in this country should come and meet the families that I teach because they drop their kids off and their kids are shining and they're, you know, perfect and their hair is perfectly brushed. <laughs> and the parents are so engaged and involved and hopeful for what school will provide to their kids, even as they go off to their two and three jobs. And she said, you can't help but feel good about People who would who would choose this place on purpose and give this country their most precious resource, which is their children. <laughs> oh, that is lovely. Although I, get, I definitely think, uh, if I think about my own experiences and and people I know, a sense of optimism—not kind of Pollyanna, everything's great all the time—but a sense that. You can see the good, yes. as you say with your story about speaking Mexican, that you can find a way either to laugh, uh, but to to imagine something good coming out even of of things that are are bad in the in the present time. I do think that is a, a key part of resilience. Oh, you, I, I you think it is to 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 find a way to be optimistic, to see a future. To understand your contribution to that future is a fundamentally resilient thing. Yeah, and it's it's really when when you say talk about your parents in the fifties and it was such an optimistic time, but I th the sixties too. On the other hand, you know, when we elected Barack Obama in two thousand eight. I think many of us felt deeply optimistic, but I do feel increasingly that America as a whole, and maybe that's that's connected to the way we 
uh, perceive and treat immigrants has lost some of that sense of a better future. That 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 it, that there, it, it was a given that it was going to be a better future, and that that that's particularly American because that is not certain. I don't know about Bolivians, but it's not European. My family's Belgian. It's not Belgian. Yeah. Um, but we may be losing some of that. Well, and at some level, not all of us always had it either. So the 1950s that's was an fair. optimistic yes. time for some for people, but not for everybody. People, yeah. Right. Yeah. So in some ways, I think what's happening now is that we're grappling with the fact that we have been multiple things at the same time. Yeah. We have been a hopeful, optimistic place. We have also been the place that enslaved people and yes. then subjected them to terrorism. All of that was true at the same time. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, frankly, when, as you might imagine, I was working in the Obama administration when the 2016 election happened. I felt some despair at that <laughs> result. But even the next day, I was able to say, look, we are we're still the same place that elected Barack Obama twice. Like, we didn't stop being that place. But we're also the place that interned Japanese Americans and took Native American kids from their parents. And, you know, we had Jim Crow laws. We and are all of those things. burned down parts of black, black uh, parts of, of cities like yeah. St. Louis or, or, as you said, yes. you know, terrorist attacks, lynchings. So we're all of those things simultaneously. But the thing... The president that you and I worked for believes fundamentally and communicated so effectively is sort of the fundamental goodness of the American people and our ability to become a more perfect union. We have that capacity, but it ebbs and flows. And our job is is to make sure that it flows. <laughs> uh, and uh, and you're also right, though, when I think about my mother, the people who choose to leave what they've known for a better future for themselves and their children have to have hope and, and a measure of optimism. Otherwise, they, they don't leave. Yeah. They just accept what life is, has dealt them. So it may, may well be tied to these wa waves of immigration and waves of optimism. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, organizational resilience. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you, you have done many different things uh, in your life, but you spent a large a part of your career at uh, the National Council of La Raza, now Unidos, a civil rights organization, a nonprofit. Yep. <laughs> And uh, so, so uh, just the existence of that organization for a long time, uh, lots of nonprofits come and go. And, uh, you know, fundraising is always an issue. I'd, I'd love for you to reflect on what you see that makes for organizational resilience, yep. because there are ebbs and flows of people, ebbs and flows of money. Issue, you know, you're up, the, yeah. your issues are salient. On the other hand, they then get pushed off the agenda. So oh, how yeah. do you think about organizational resilience? Yeah, I've spent a lot of my <laughs> career on this. And and actually, I'm going to plug a book that that I'm in the middle of reading now by my friend Charles Kamasaki, who's at Unidos now. He's been there for 30 years. He wrote a book called Immigration Reform, The Corpse That Will Not Die, which is about <laughs> the work that he and others engaged in to pass an immigration bill in the 80s. But it has an amazing kind of historical framework around groups like NCLR and the other Latino civil rights organizations and their trajectory from their founding through today. And so it's had me reflecting on kind of what it took to bring these organizations into being hmm. and then what it took to help them survive. Yeah. I got to NCLR in 1988, which was only a few years after the Reagan administration, at which absolutely decimated the budget. So yeah. NCLR was founded with war on poverty money. Oh, I didn't know that. Actually founded with help. It's a great story. It's founded really by the Ford Foundation, who told three Mexican-American scholars, gave them a 
budget for a year and told them to go out and dream their dreams. And what they came back with was analysis that the African-American community had the historically black colleges and universities and the black church as kind of a... Anchors uh, of their community. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, yeah, and as backbone for the civil rights right. movement. And because so many of us are Catholic, we didn't have that. And we didn't, don't have our own colleges and universities. So they posited that you needed to build a network of community-based organizations to become the backbone for a civil huh. rights movement. In the, in, they started in the Mexican-American community. And then in the 70s, the organization made a decision, which I think won by one vote in the board, to become a pan-Hispanic organization to, to try to reflect all, oh. all Hispanic Americans. So one lesson about institutional resilience is knowing what your North Star is, yeah. know, knowing what your purpose is. And for 16 of the 20 years that I worked, I worked under Raul Isaguirre, who is a great man and who has his compass set almost better than anybody I know. And so it was clear to him why the organization existed. We were advancing the economic status. We, you know, we were fighting poverty and discrimination. Right. It was clear to him and he made it clear to us. And that clarity helped him make some remarkably difficult decisions when funders would come to us and say, you know, we we want to work with you, we want to give you money, but, but for example, could you not talk about poultry workers? Under those conditions, he would say, no, I won't take your money, but here's what I think you should do. You should set up a blue ribbon commission. I will tell you who will be on it, and it's going to be independent. And let them look at poultry workers and provide data so that you can figure out if there's something you want to do. That was the kind of guy he was. He was perfectly willing to turn down money, including when he needed it very badly, for the sake of principle, because he understood that the integrity of the institution was actually its best marketing device. Huh. And that, you know, he diversified the funding base after the Reagan administration cut out the war on poverty money. There were some federal contracts. Know. So it was government money it was originally? It was war on poverty money originally. Wow. Ford Foundation and, and government. That's fascinating. And when Reagan came in, he, he cut those grants, including, you know, federal grants that were three-year grants that he right. just cut them right in the middle. So a bunch of... Uh, NCLR's affiliates went out of business, and and they NCLR went from a staff of over 120 down to less than 50. It was, so it was wow, really that's challenging. Really dramatic. But he diversified the funding base. So you know, when I left now 10 years ago, the budget was about a third corporations, a third foundations, um, and a third government funds. Wow. And wow. the deal with corporations was, this is who we are, and <laughs> you want to be associated with it. But understand that you don't get to tell us what to do, and the and the the corporations that understood that 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 was a sign of good corporate citizenship, and that they actually wanted to be associated with that kind of integrity, as opposed to the ones who were interested in pay to play. The ones who were actually interested in that kind of integrity were the are the ones who are the partners, and that's really important. So from Raul, I learned that kind of integrity, how that in kind of integrity latches to institutions, yep. and how important a North Star is. And how important it is for an institution to be clear, this is what we do, and come on board if you want to do it too, rather than doing what so many NGOs do, which is, you know, chase the funds wherever they happen to be. It's not easy to keep that kind of focus. I love that thing. I've not thought about resilience as integrity and direction, but I certainly think it is, again, a kind of spiritual resource. And I always say to my children, you know, when I die, if you remember nothing else of me, I hope you'll hear my voice in your ear saying, do the right thing, Mm -hmm. you know, do the, just don't 
compromise your integrity, figure out what is the right thing and, and then do it. And that, that is a, yes, that's a kind of solid rock on which to stand. Uh, and this idea of focus and direction also, I certainly, uh, running a, a nonprofit as I do, it is very, very easy to follow the fad of the day, the funder of the day. Uh, and, but you're right. Then, then when the winds come, you 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 don't you've lost your foundation exactly. And when the winds come, if you're able to hearken back to what is the strong thing at your core, and then if you're faced with a tough decision, that core generally makes the the, the decision really clear. And it it may be it may mean that there's a cost to that decision, right? But it it just it clarifies things in yeah. a remarkable yeah. way. And if you have to agonize over, is this the ethical decision? Yeah, generally, it's probably not. <laughs> Right. Yes, that is definitely one thing I've learned. Right when when you you can rationalize anything, but the fact that you have to get there means you really you just shouldn't have gone down that road. That's I think a a real addition to the way we're thinking about resilience. Uh, let me turn to your time in the White House. So you were the uh, director of the Dom- Domestic Policy Council under President Obama for six years, five years, uh, and before that worked in in intergovernmental affairs. But you know you. Were were the chief White House official for domestic policy. Now, that does not include economic policy because there's an economic policy council and there's a national security council, but that includes you know, a lot of stuff, right? I mean, immigration and health care and education and labor and I mean, you know, agriculture. So, at uh, first place, um, it's an extraordinary portfolio. What I wonder is, did you think of resilience as part of, of policy making or so you started by saying with climate absolutely we all get resilience is something we're striving for right. but if you're thinking about education or healthcare are you thinking about the resilience of the system are you thinking about resilience of people is that even relevant to the way you framed various issues i think it is i'm not sure we use the term specifically but i do think that's actually what we were doing so the healthcare system is a great example like right what the affordable care act is is taking the existing system rather than turfing it out the door and coming up with something else which we ultimately didn't think could certainly couldn't have passed the Congress that we had at the time. You take the existing system and you find ways to make it healthier, find ways to, ways to make it work. So for us, that meant legislation that balanced the values we were trying to put forward, making sure people had coverage, making sure they had you know protections for um, be like preventive care right, and other kinds right. of things. So, but if you require those kinds of things, and if you set standards that a, a health insurance policy must meet, which we did for the first time. You also need to make sure you can create a robust market or else it doesn't yeah. work, right? Yeah. If the only yeah. people who get health insurance are people who are sick, yeah. We're in trouble. It, then the market <laughs> fails. So so it was about the resilience of the market, the resilience of insurance, the resilience of the healthcare system. Because hmm. that's the only way to bend the cost curve. Right. And right. and as much as the Affordable Care Act was about getting people coverage, it was also about bending the cost yes. curve for the it healthcare system. So I think that's about resilience of systems. And of course, as you know, a lot of us, including some of the people you recruited to come to New America <laughs> think a lot about um, the resilience and health of government systems that are delivering all kinds of different kinds of services. I mean, the reason that we were building a public interest tech project here at New America is because, you know, people like Tara McGinnis and I came out of the government 
really worried about government implementation, about our ability to deliver big things that help address issues like inequality. And and among the tools that we want to make available to governments and to NGOs so that they're effective are the tools that technologists bring to the table. And And I think that's also about that's fundamentally about government's ability to do what it sets what out it says to do. What it's going to do. And that, to me, that's a resilience question. That that affects not just the capacity of the government to do what it needs to do, but our ability to have faith that the government yep. can actually yep. deliver and not. You know, the, the notion that if you get a letter from some agency of the government that says you you must – Get some new document of some kind, you know, whatever it is, a new driver's license, whatever it is. The first reaction of American is going to be to roll their eyes and 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 get brace themselves for a lot of inefficiency and <laughs> ugh, right. right. If that's what we think our how our government works, and it, it's not, and not without reason, that affects the resilience of our democracy. Yeah, frankly, absolutely, it does. Yeah. That's a thing we gotta we yeah. have to deal with, yeah. and there's no reason we can't. It's hard, but come on, absolutely. Actually, uh, a couple governors ago, um, they they really overhauled the New Jersey uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, and it makes all the difference in the world. You go, and you're in and out in 10 minutes, and you think, oh, government can do that. Government's fast. Government's efficient. Uh, you know, we always remind people that good enough for government work used to mean a higher standard than private sector. It meant that's good enough to be sold to the government or to be used by the government, uh, which is not the way most people think right. of it today. Well, think about it. We've invented ways that like you and I sitting here right now could be on our phones ordering a pair of shoes. Yeah. There's no reason that our interactions with the government shouldn't be that simple. Exactly. That, exactly. We invented that stuff here in the United States. <laughs> We're the people who did that. Yes, exactly. Um, so y- you have a book coming out. I do. <laughs> you do. Uh, it's a wonderful book uh, called More Than Ready. Uh, and it's a book that I think everybody should read. Thank you. But it is specifically aimed at. Uh, the Latinx community and specifically Latinas, right? right. You, it's really young women of color. Right. Yeah. Young women of color uh, across the board. And I won't ask you to preview the whole book, but if you're thinking about what it takes, again, the word resilience is a word. It captures a lot of different things, but more, you know, here's what you got to build to be able to withstand what life's going to throw at you, because life's going to throw a lot of stuff at you. What do you say? You know, it's reflected in the title. I mean, the reason we <laughs> landed on More Than Ready as a title is be, is not just to reflect that the, the country is more than ready for women of color to lead, which it is. <laughs> yes, it is. But that part of the ways that I and all of the women of color that I spoke to in preparing the book, the way that we overcome our own doubts and fears is we prepare like crazy for for the situations that we find ourselves in. So if we're going to give a presentation, if we're, you know, sort of whatever it is, we work it and we make sure we know our stuff. And that's the way we overcome not just other people's doubts about us, but our own doubts about ourselves, about whether we really belong, you know, whether I really belong at the table in the Roosevelt Room sitting across from the President of the United States. The way to answer that question for me was make sure I know my stuff, make sure I do my homework. And and that's how all more of us do ready. it. And, and exactly, to be more than ready. So talking to other women over and over again, that's what we do. We Every single one that I spoke to in preparing this book said, oh yeah, I totally overprepare. I get my confidence from that, right? From the fact that I know my stuff. And that's how I crowd out the little voice in my head that says, what the heck are you doing here? 
like, really? You, you belong here? Nobody else like you has ever sat in this seat. Right. What makes you think you should sit in this seat? Like you can crowd out that voice by saying, well, let me describe for you the you know 16 ways we're going to reform the healthcare system and the reasons that it's important that people have access to preventive care and you know whatever else the, the facts tell you. That the confidence in what you know, and in my case, the confidence that the president had asked me to do that job on purpose, knowing what he was getting, I leaned into that a lot to remind myself that I did belong there. Yeah. It's hard when you're the first one. And so many women of all kinds are the only person in the room, the only one in the room, and certainly people of color too are frequently the only one in the room, yes. or the first one in their role. And that's really hard. You realize you're blazing a trail. Our own colleague, Tyra Mariani, who was one of the women that I spoke to, talked about how you sort of feel like you're carrying in her, the way she put it, she spoke to someone who said to her, I carry my blackness in the room all the time. Yeah. I'm aware of it all the time. Yeah. And people react to it all day long. And so we all have strategies that we use to make sure that people we're sitting across from understand that we have what it takes to do what we're doing. What's so interesting is that you have to withstand what comes from without, but also from within, yeah. right? That you are having to push back, as you say, on that that little voice that says, well, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe there's a reason there's never been a woman in this seat or a woman of color in this seat. Right. Uh, so that you, you really have to... to defend okay internally yeah. as as well as as externally yeah that's exactly right and yeah. some of the doubts come from outside but a lot of them come from from the inside yeah. and that's hard it takes it takes deliberate work and so one of the things i try to do in the book is is just describe strategies that that i used and that the women that i spoke to used to to make sure we could deliver the goods right although you're also sharing your own vulnerabilities to strengthen others. And that's certainly something I've found when I talk to audiences of, of young people mm -hmm. and young women in particular, that just telling them, yes, of course, I was absolutely terrified exactly. day one of the job. You know, I wanted to stay in bed in fetal position <laughs> rather than, you know, run my first faculty meeting or take over as director of policy planning. And that showing them, so drawing aside the curtain on your vulnerabilities then gives them greater courage. So. That's exactly right. And I ended up making a practice of it when I was in the White House because it was, it was legit <laughs> scary. Um, and I was sure I couldn't be the only one. Right. So I was just like, what do I know? I started asking people. So I remember like on the really on one of our very first days seeing Robert Gibbs, who was the press secretary. Yes. He was about to go in to do the very, his very first press briefing, right, where you have to walk in and get be able, ready to answer whatever questions right, the media right. has. And, you know, Robert is somebody who's got, he has some swagger to him. He does. But I saw him in the hallway and I was like, oh, my God, you're doing the briefing. Are you scared? And and it was like a mask fell off of his face and he looked at me. He was like, oh, my God, I'm scared to death. <laughs> That's so great. But there's something sort of liberating yes. about giving people the room to admit it because, of course, you're scared. Absolutely. And and uh, the women were a little – had an easier time admitting it than the men. But I think it's important because it's already enough of a burden to do hard things, but it's more of a burden if you have to pretend that they're not scary. Yeah. Because, of course, they're scared. Absolutely. I remember when I was teaching at Harvard Law School, Lawrence Tribe, you know, was one of the great con law professors and legendary. And somehow it's more or less the same thing. It was the day before school started, and I ran into him, and he said, well, I won't sleep tonight. And I thought, you're Lawrence 
drive. What are you talking about? But, you know, it was the day before class, and, and there's always those butterflies, and you walk back into the class and you face it. So I, I do think that's very important. Well, I think that's a great note, actually, on, on which to end, because one of the themes of our conversations about resilience have been that it's resilience is about we more than I. And you said that at the beginning, you know, having a community, having that those those resources of strength can be internal, but they can also be external. And so this idea that, as you say, it's hard enough to do it, it's even harder to do it alone. So if you can establish a virtual or actual community of people you know who feel the same way, who've gone through the same thing, who you can lean on, uh, that's, that is a critical part of taking what life delivers and adapting and surviving and thriving. And the, look, the, the question we're ans- trying to answer as a country is whether collectively we have the capacity to do that. That is true. Right? Exactly right. So that's that's the ultimate group resilience. And uh, how we answer that kind of matters. <laughs> it does indeed. Cecilia Munoz, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews. 